This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. The Fed raised interest rates again this week. Input prices remain historically high. How should farmers evaluate what and when to make purchases? How can we make decisions that will result in the best profit margins? I'll visit with one farmer to learn his strategy in one of agriculture's more difficult places to farm. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. One of the biggest concerns for farmers during these times of rising input prices is what nitrogen to choose. Even with higher prices, you still need nitrogen, and in today's world, I'm always looking for ways to increase bushels while using more sustainable farming methods. That led me to Pivot BioProven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. Ron Raybo farms in southeastern Wyoming. It can be a challenging place to make a living in agriculture, yet Ron has done well. While he will admit he makes some wrong decisions, he has challenged the way many of us look at our decision-making process and how we can take steps to lock in the best margins on what we grow and raise. Here's our conversation. Ron Raybo joins me. Ron has been a guest on this show before. Glad to have him back. Farms in southeastern Wyoming. Ron, we're going to talk about crops and your year here in just a moment. But why don't we start with that? Just talk about how dry it's been because we think of things that are dry, but you have really been very, very dry this year. Yeah, you know, I know that we, you know, I think farmers across the United States in, you know, varying regions have really struggled with moisture really over the last couple of years. But it has been the driest. I've heard guys say around here that have been around here for a long time that they say it's the driest that they've seen in over 50 years. And and it seems like when we we have gotten a few storms that have come through. Those have just been very, very isolated and very small. And so for us in, you know, southeastern Wyoming, we have a tendency to measure rainfall in hundreds of an inch, as shameful as that sounds, uh, and as awful as that sounds, actually. But that's how we measure it. We measure it in hundreds and tenths. And we had a couple of spots that got hit this summer one-tenth at a time. And literally since the middle of May, we've gotten a couple of shots on a, on isolated pieces away from the actual farm headquarters a tenth at a time. I think the most we got on a place collectively all summer was close to a quarter of an inch. And so the crops, you know, have obviously suffered from that. Uh, the ground has suffered from that. Uh, we experience much higher winds than what we're accustomed to, even though we're accustomed to very high winds here, but not through the middle of June like we were this year. This year was very difficult. And so we're going into our planting season now. Uh, we plant winter wheat and we start planting that the fourth week of August. And it's been challenging to say the least. It's, you know, it's I, I, a lot of guys have decided that they're going to wait to plant 
because what happens out here is the soil is very sandy anyway. And so through the course of the of the year and, and us who farm organically, you know, we have to use mechanical tillage. And so when we do that, every time you go through the field, you're just drying the field out even further when you're not replenishing that moisture that you're losing through the tillage with any kind of a rainfall. And so we ended up with, you know, four, six, eight, ten inches of what I would liken to either flour or powdered sugar on top. And so when you go to plant wheat in that, it just fills in the furrows and you can't control really how much sand actually flows back in those furrows. And so it's been, it's been a, a challenging year, but uh, we've tried, we're trying to count our blessings this year, which is what we have to do. As farmers, we're already looking ahead to the next season. You're already putting a crop in that, you know, winter wheat that will overwinter. With the, where we're at with input prices, whether it be fertilizer or the whole slew of things, and also where we set with interest rates, I mean, you know, we've continued to go up in interest, and I think there's talk of could we hit base rates of 10%. I don't know that we will get there by year end, but certainly mm-hmm. we're climbing. I'm interested, how is that changing what you're doing, or is it changing at all? Are you going to buy just as many inputs? Are you going to lock it in, do everything you've always done just the same, or is it affecting your decisions already as you look ahead to next year? Well, uh, it's a great question, and it's and, and I'm not sure what the, what the right answer is, to be honest with you. Uh, we're obviously trying to be as conservative as we absolutely can be, but there's a limit to that. Because as those of us who farm know, there are just so many factors that are completely beyond our control that, that, you know, our farm, for some reason, this was the year, of course, when inputs are up, this is the year where, and we have a really solid maintenance program, but man, we have just really experienced a lot of downtime with equipment and a lot of repairs more than we're used to. And, and so that's been a challenge. So that's an uncontrollable thing. Um, you know, we have to burn diesel. That's an uncontrollable thing. We can mitigate some of that risk by trying to do an early contract on that. But even though we can early contract some of those inputs, we're fairly limited to, you know, I know what I was paying for for diesel even a year ago, uh, as compared to today, and it's it's not it's not even you don't even think you're buying the same product because apparently it's it's you know it's you're putting liquid gold in your tractors now and every other machine that that we raise or that we uh, that we run and so so we have we try to like I said mitigate as much of that risk as possible by having a what I think is a superior maintenance program. Uh, we really try to take good care of the machines. Um, we really try to, you know, if something breaks on the farm, we don't just wire it together and put duct tape around it and hope it lasts until next year. If we're going to fix it, we're going to fix it right. And uh, I have this saying that pay me now or pay me later. And so it, you're either going to pay for it up front, you're going to do it correctly and buy the correct parts to begin with, or it's going to steal from your time and increase your level of frustration. And eventually you're going to have to pay for a full price anyway, and it's probably going to be more expensive down the road. And so what we are paying attention to um, certainly are, as you mentioned in the last question, is what consumer demands are. 
Uh, fortunately, I think for those of us who are farming, even though the inputs have gone up this year, that the price of the commodities that we're selling have gone up. Uh, we've we've found a very good market in the millet market and in the chickpea market. And fortunately, those are two crops that work very, very well for us here. And we've been very successful with those crops over time. And we will continue to monitor what those are moving into next year. But I would say there's really no indication that those markets are really going to tank, you know, even in the next year, because the different areas that I know that grow those crops, they either didn't grow them this year or they were in the same boat that we are in where they just didn't have much production. And so supply has definitely decreased, uh, but I'm certain that demand has not decreased for those particular products that are made from those grains. So I think we're going to be okay looking with those. We're going to get a little bit tighter next year with uh, planting populations. Uh, we're going to usually, we're try, we try to be fairly aggressive with that. I think we'll probably scale back on a lot of our crops. We've already scaled back on uh, the amount of seeds per acre that we're putting down. You know, we always caution towards the high side, but this year we're moving towards the low side and maybe the low middle side. And so if we can save some money there, we're trying to do that as well. But I think that we, we all of us who are in production agriculture, I think that we have some very big hurdles in front of us. Uh, my fear as we move in to the future not, is, is not just interest rates, um, although that really affects our bottom line most all of us who, who are in production ag, I mean, it, is, it has a huge, has a huge play on our bottom line. But I'm concerned that when the price of commodities begin to decrease, typically we don't see a decrease in input costs. So what does that look like from a producer standpoint? And I'm not sure what the answers are on how to prepare for that. We have on, on our particular operation, we have o over the last few years when interest rates have been good, we've been buying our interest rates down when we had an opportunity to, and we've locked in as much long-term stuff as we can. Uh, but we've amortized that over a shorter period of time so we can whittle away at the principle of that faster so that we can get rid of some of those payments that seem to linger over time. So we have really tried very, very hard over time to, um, to buy all of our equipment. Um, now I know that that doesn't work. There's a lot of folks who are involved with the leasing program and, and only you know what works best for your own individual operation. For us, it made sense to buy what we have and work on it as time moves forward and, and take care of it. And that for us over the last several years, it's been a great program for us. Uh, because we're able to build that inventory and be able to put that on our balance sheet. Whereas if we're leasing a piece of equipment, we can't do that. And so it gives us a little bit of an advantage as far as that goes. I'm interested, what do you hear uh, from others maybe in your area? And I know you're well-connected even across the nation here. Do you think that where we stand with input prices, but also looking long-term, we mentioned interest rates and so forth, is that affecting long-term purchases, whether that be for land or equipment upgrades? So far, it doesn't seem like we're seeing anything, but I'm wondering what you're hearing out there. We haven't really seen a lot here. In fact, if anything, we've seen an increase of the values of the farmland, uh, which is really, we don't have the major swings that 
other states have in real estate prices, whether it's land prices or home prices. Uh, but we've seen a steady increase the last few years in the value of irrigated and dry land farm ground in this particular area. In my mind, I have to, I, I'm thinking to myself at some point, something has to give and that value can't continue to rise to make it work. But I think some of the things that we're fighting really, and not necessarily fighting, but some of the things that we're experiencing are the fact that there's a lot more outside money, it seems to me, in production ag than there used to be. And and so I think, I mean, I'm no land expert, but it seems to me that that's maybe holding some of these values um, at the levels that they are at and maybe even pushing the envelope, continuing to push it further and higher uh, with some of these uh, prices of land. But I've been thinking for the last couple of years that values of homes, values of land should be going down based on this reflection. And I've been I've been absolutely wrong the entire time. And so, you know, I'm probably not the best guy to make that call. But but reason would say, which apparently there's no reason to it, but reason would say, you know, these interest rates and the rising input costs have to affect things eventually. But everyone's situation is different. You know, in our area, you see a lot of guys that have a lot of oil and mineral money. And so there's a resource that comes not from the farm or not from the ranch, but it comes from a a secondary source, which really is probably the primary source, um, which allows them to continue to purchase equipment and allows them to continue to grow their operations. Uh, if you're doing it like we are just from production, uh, it's a different game and the numbers are completely different. So I think everyone is in a different place. Uh, but I certainly have to think that there is a, there's going to come a point in time where we're really going to sit up and take note and really notice what the negative long-term effects are going to be as a result of all of this. Hey, Rob, just talk about your decision to perhaps grow, you, you went organic, but also to grow the many crops that you do. I think you would say it's been a good decision for you. Just walk people through the kind of quick thinking of, hey, is this something I should do? Maybe I've just been traditional crops or livestock, but you ventured out there and did something different and it's been very successful for you. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. And and just so the, the folks who uh, who don't know my story, I'm, I'm happy to just reiterate that in, in brief here, that uh, I grew up on a family ranch and I was fifth generation on a cattle ranch. And when my father passed away, when I was in my mid-20s, it completely changed the dynamics on that operation. I ended up being, quote unquote, the bad guy that left the branching operation and ended up at my grandparents' place. Uh, started, I had some very, very old, like 1950s and 60s equipment. Um, I had a place that was falling down and didn't have much farm ground to speak of, certainly not enough to pay the bills. And so we took it upon ourselves to say, let's figure this thing out. It was kind of a sink or swim moment for us. So we really initially did it out of necessity. It was, you were either going to survive or we're not. And so we decided, hey, let's jump off the cliff and let's see if we can figure out how to swim. And so we've been very blessed as a result for making those decisions. And so what we've done as a business model for our operation is to really pay close attention to the consumer markets 
I think that farmers have a tendency to lock themselves into, well, this is what we've always grown. We grow corn, we grow soybeans, <clears throat> we do summer fallow and wheat would be the practice here. And I just thought to myself, well, there has to be some other things. I, I know that that we have extreme cl- an extreme climate here and we don't get a lot of rain. We get a lot of wind. We're at 5,300 feet elevation, but there has to be something that we can do here that works. For goodness sakes, they farm in Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia. I'm pretty sure that there's got to be something that we can raise here in southeastern Wyoming. For us, it's really been a trial and error thing. It's been a big, uh, our farm has really been a giant experimental station is what I feel like from time to time. Only we're footing the bill, not the, not the state or the federal government. And so we've had a lot of fails, but we've had a lot of wins. And what we do is we have to take those fails and we, just because a crop fails for us doesn't mean that we quit growing it. We say, okay, well, we probably didn't have the right environment that year. Let's, let's dabble in it a little bit. So we would try 10 acres. We'd try 30 acres, 40 acres, something that we could afford to lose if we were going to lose all of it. And then over time, we developed this uh, rotation that has been advantageous for us. Here, we, most guys are used to a summer fallow and wheat rotation, which means that you crop 50% of your acres and 50% of your acres are open. Those who are blessed enough to live in the Midwest have no idea what a fallow acre is, as I've discovered, as I've spoken at different conferences out there. And that's wonderful. But fallow is just ground that we just leave open and then we have to cultivate it all summer long, sometimes three, four, five times during the summer, and then go in and plant. That's what goes into our wheat. The wheat comes up, hopefully, and uh, that's what holds the ground from blowing over the winter. And what we've been able to do, instead of cropping 50% of our acres, we've been able to crop between 70 and 75% of our acres. And so we're leaving fewer acres open because we're cropping more ground. Um, our, Our soil has become healthier over time. And we've had an opportunity to learn that because we're growing some legumes and because some of these crops are very good, particularly prosomil, it's very good about weed control, then we've been able to change some of the, uh, the, the weed problem patterns that we were having. And we've had an increase in our yields over time for our winter wheat as well. And so we've just been able to experiment and find a rotation that works. So I would encourage everyone really to say, look, I mean, times are lean, times are tough. Certainly it doesn't look like on the horizon that t- that things are going to get easier. Um, they certainly don't look like they're going to become less expensive. So what are we doing on our own operations that makes financial sense? Um, for our operation, because we had to invest in all the infrastructure, the storage, the equipment, and the land, we were really starting a farm in essence from scratch. And so we really had to pay very, very close attention to what our return was, not just on our equipment, but on our land and every investment investment that we made into our farm, we had to look at it and say, okay, does this investment make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, what can we put it into that would give us a higher rate of return? And I think that if we, during times like this, we need to do that. We're going to have to do that if we're going to survive, uh, really, I think what's honestly an unforeseeable future, you know, with input prices and with uh, commodity prices, who knows where this thing is going. We're going to have to really get good at 
like I said before, sharpening those pencils. A lot of things happen, and people know this, that a lot of things happen on the coasts. You go to the East Coast, you go on the West Coast, and then it trickles into Middle America. So if you go to places that are on the coast, you'll see things that I didn't even know what a chickpea was when we started raising it. And then people were explaining to me, and my only relation to chickpeas was the bean at the salad bar that no one eats. It's like the only container that's that's still full in the salad bar. They're going to replace everything else on the salad bar. They never have to replace that. I thought, well, then why is there a market for it? So I had to learn that market. Obviously, hummus is a very big thing. And so I familiarized myself with that. I didn't really, I mean, I'd never eaten flax or anything like that, but, but flax will grow in a dry climate. And I think we have to get the right perspective on this. We don't chase yields on our farm. We chase net profitability because at the end of the day, if we raise high yielding crops that are a, 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 a low net producing crop, we're better off raising a crop that's a value added that produces much, much less because our net profit at the end of the day is much more. And for us, that's been a real eye opener because there are many crops that we grow that I never even heard of before. I didn't know that millet is at the time was put into baby food, uh, but the gluten-free market is huge and people want gluten-free grains and flax is gluten-free chickpeas are gluten-free uh proso millet is gluten-free and so now they're learning all of these different food products that we can make out of these gluten-free products which incidentally some of them like chickpeas um, and yellow peas and lentils are very high in protein the point is this that as farmers what we have to do, especially in lean times, but we should get good at doing this all the time. We should say what I think really doesn't matter. What the consumer thinks is what matters the most. And if the consumer wants to eat plant-based protein meat, uh, then God bless them. I'll grow the protein for it. I'm great with that. I'm going to continue to eat my steak and my burger like I always have. But I understand that there's a market out there that exists that that in a lot of ways, I really don't understand that. But I've learned to become aware of it, at least, because it can help the bottom line of our own individual operation. And I think that as producers, we can look at that and we can say, you know, hey, there's a niche here that no one's doing. There's a demand. I'm going to yield a third of what another crop is, but I'll make twice as much. How great is that? Ron, good thoughts. I always appreciate your time. Uh, before we wind up, tell people how they find you. I know you've got a website out there, right, where they can find uh, more about you and the farm? I sure do, yes. So it's rabofarms.com, and that's R-A-B is in boy, O-U, farms.com. And they can also go to ronrabo.com. And they can find me on Instagram Instagram, and Facebook as well. Uh, we've got some really, really fun things coming up. We hosted a Live Fire Republic event at the farm this year, which was an unprecedented event. We ate on the farm with farm-grown produce uh, under candlelight and chandeliers. 
Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. We've got some videos that will be that uh, we got a trailer that's going to be released this week for that. And then there's a big uh, a video that will be coming out on YouTube about that as well. So we're doing some fun things. Um, folks can uh, find uh, both of my books on my website. Uh, my latest one is called Make Your Own Way. And it's really our story about how we reinvented ourselves after leaving the ranch and, and went to build a farm and uh, found a way to create independence in our own individual production ag operation. And uh, my my uh, email is on there and people can feel free to always touch base with me there and uh, we'll respond back as quick as I can. That's it for this week's show. I appreciate Ron taking the time to visit in the middle of seeding time. Ron can often be found speaking on some of these topics as well, so take advantage of the chance to hear him when you can. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as well, where I'm posting pics and info from our own farm. We hope to start harvest this week, so I'll try to get some pictures and video of that online as we get in the field. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.